0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Finance Show. This is the show where we try and make sense of the world of personal finance and hopefully help you make better financial decisions. My name is Ruben Zell, I'm a financial planner and principal at Adapt Wealth Management. And I'm joined again by my co-host, good friend, financial planner at True Pride and improving golfer, Craig Bigelow. Hello. Craig. Craig?
1: Hello, mate. How are you?
0: Good to have you back again this week.
1: Mate, it's a, it's a pleasure. I'm glad to be here.
0: <laughs> Excellent. So, Craig, we're going to just uh, build up on what we were talking about last week about you know some of those massive financial uh, mistakes. And a bit of a common theme amongst them was there was a huge amount of borrowing in those cases. So, I thought today we were going to focus on borrowing. Excellent. So, I mean, there's different sort of jargon around, isn't there, when people talk about borrowing to invest, they use gearing, leverage, I mean, it's probably worthwhile actually maybe defining what, what they mean.
1: Yeah, it was funny when we were talking just before the show and both of us were thinking along the same lines that the idea of these terms can be thrown around so loosely and it's it's pretty rare that we, we define them. So, um, I guess... To me the, the the meaning of, of gearing is as simple as borrowing to invest, right? But the definition that you found was a bit different, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, well it's interesting as looking up um what leverage actually means, so there's a couple of things here, the exertion of force by means of a lever. Um I guess that's not really that no. relevant, <laughs> but but using something to maximum advantage. So that's Yep, that's interesting. So using like, you know, someone else's resources or something Something, or else. Or something that yep. else that you've got to kind of go ahead, and then obviously, there's you know the one that makes most sense from an investment point of view, which is using borrowed capital for an investment, expecting the profits made to be greater than the interest payable.
1: Yeah, and I, I think I mentioned to you before that it's funny that they only, even in the definition, deal with the upside.
0: Yeah, it's very true, isn't it? Whereas, mm. whereas, you know, as we discussed last week, it's like you know, there can be massive, massive downside.
1: Well, it's just, being, it's just being open to the fact that it, if you're leveraging, the result's going to be magnified both ways. I think that's exactly. the only thing to note, really. It's, yeah, if it all goes well, you're laughing. If it goes poorly, you're doubly or however multiple times worse off.
0: That's right. And look, it's interesting also, um, just some stats, because you often hear about how much borrowing people have in this country and how it's sort of increased exponentially. And it's funny, it's probably occurred at a couple of different levels, firstly at the government level, mm-hmm. you know, the amount of borrowing that the government's had to do over the last 20 or 30 years. I was listening on the radio yesterday and they said that, you know, there have been the number of, you know, 20 years or so of constant budget deficits. I don't know about
1: you, but I've I've almost, and I'm not, not sure about everyone else, but I seem to tune out, you know, like the numbers are so... Unrealistic to me, you know, when they talk trillions of dollars, yeah. like, and it seems that every first world country is carrying this ridiculous amount of debt. Whereas if it's a household, there's always a plan to get out of it. Whereas with yeah. a country, what's the plan? You, you print more money, like I, I I just so it's never really factored into my mind. You know yeah, it's what
0: I mean? and it comes up like politically, every yeah, now and then, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, we're spending all the future generations' money, and we're going to be saddling them with all this debt. Um. So it becomes a real political football at certain times. Yeah. Then, but then you think about it and then it just kind of fades away. And you're well,
1: right. it's weird. It's kind of a level of debt because they're never going to get back to... They're never going to have positive no. money like no. because that's a waste. But it, it's just how deep the deficit and you're fighting over how bad it is. That's
0: right. And there's also times where... They argue and they say, "Look, we should be going into more deficit. Correct. to be building infrastructure." Well, be- they're talking about this with Trump. Yeah. You know,
1: that's his big call is that he's going to make America great again by investing back in, um, in, in the in the companies in the country itself. So, spending money to build up the national national economy itself.
0: Absolutely. So then, I guess um, probably what you know we talk about what's relevant. I mean. What's more relevant on a personal basis is what what the average Australian, you know, the average Australian family is borrowing, mm-hmm. right? And that's, you know, if you look at the stats, you know, that's increased exponentially. So, um according to an A.M.P. report, the average Australian household debt is four times what it was in nineteen ninety eight, right? It's grown from sixty thousand to about two hundred and forty thousand, um, and the ratio of household debt to disposable income. So that means what. You know how many times your income is the debt has almost tripled mm. from sixty four percent to one hundred and eighty five
1: percent. What are you saying? I mean, because these these stats take into consideration everybody. Yeah. Uh, what What do you come across?
0: The, these numbers don't shock me. No, they don't surprise me at all. I think, um, and we're we'll, we, we're speaking to um to a mortgage broker a bit later, Peter Reeb, and it'll be interesting to hear his take on, on how things have changed mm. over the years. But I think the structure of how easy it is to get credit has changed enormously. I mean, for our parents, you know, when they, you know, when they bought their house, I don't know, back in the eighties, seventies, or eighties, yep. you know, you had a loan, which was like 15 years or 25 years and you paid it back.
1: But and it was crazy cause they were at interest, uh, they were interest rates for credit card rates, weren't they? 16 they to were 20%. in the nineties. Yeah. In
0: the nineties. Mm. Um, but it's also interesting as well, though, because the, but the amount that they borrowed was a lot less. A lot less. Right? Yeah, correct. So, so, you know, people talk about how bad it was then, and it was, and property prices fell a lot. Mm. But the amount of borrowing that people had was much, much less. I understand. Yeah. But what but I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, it used to be you had these pretty standard vanilla loans. Yeah. And you paid them off, and then you were paid off, and then you retired. Right? Yep. Yeah. Now with the different types of loans and the banks having to, happy to lend at an interest only basis, there's sometimes not a impetus to pay it back. And I, I'm, I see some people who are in their 60s who have still got debt and some of them on interest only. And well, that, that frightens me.
1: Well, I had a client the other day, they balked at an idea. They, went, they were buying a new house yep. and they balked at the idea of a bank only wanted to give them a... I think it was a 15-year loan term. They were 62 and the bank only offered 15 years and they wouldn't go with them because they wouldn't offer them a 30-year loan term. Really? And I was explaining to them the worst thing that could happen is that they start paying back their house. Like That's the worst yeah. thing that happens. And I was, you're going to have to pay it back at some point and it's just... Uh, I think that we we are getting in debt younger and staying in debt later. So the period of time in, in our lifetimes that we're in debt is such a greater percentage now than it used to be.
0: Yeah, I, and that's actually one of the stats that came out of this aim report oh, sorry. as well, that they said that over 65s are the ones that have increased their debt the most. <laughs> so, you know, there's probably some other reasons you could say, well, people are working longer and the like, But but to me it's a... Yeah, you know, it's a really worrying sign when people are carrying this debt, yep. you know, as you say, far, far longer than what they used to do. And now even you know, and you could argue whether this is good or bad, they've got those reverse loans as Correct. well. Right. Yep. So, you know, when people retire and they, they've paid off their home, they're getting an age pension and they want to supplement it but they may not have much assets, they can start, you know, taking a bit out of their home loan each year as well. So they can they can build it back up again.
1: Yep. Um, but it's also—it's not really what you were talking about, was it? It's—it's it's the percentage of time people are in debt, and whether it's for a good purpose or a poor purpose, it's still in debt to someone else. That you're not owning your own stuff outright, are you? That's right. Mm.
0: Yeah. I mean, the other look—I guess, you know—it's probably you know worthwhile looking thinking about the other side as well. Is that? Even though people's debt has increased a lot, people's wealth has increased a lot because we've had such a big property yep. boom as well. So you could argue, well, people have leveraged, but in general, they've leveraged well yep. because they have bought assets that have increased in value. So yeah, that, that is another side, another side of it. So if you look at their total position, there, what you call you know their ratio of their debt to their assets, mm. it may not look as bad as kind of some of those figures that we are talking about before.
1: Well, it's funny. I I think um, I was talking to another uh, mate of mine that owns a business the other day and he was sort of saying, I was talking to him about the position of being in debt and that I'd never felt like I was debt free ever. Mm. Ever since I was a kid, I I don't remember a time where I had no debt. Mm. I always had something that was happening and and he just said, if you're going to be in business, you just have to get comfortable with it. And I think that's... You know, it's kind of what we're talking about with the leverage. With the right, with the right debt, it's leveraged. The wrong debt's debt, isn't it? Yeah. And there is a difference.
0: That's right. And and it's interesting is when you're talking about that with businesses. I was just actually talking to a a, a client of mine who is in a public company, and he was saying how well the actually the, you know the share market and investors want to see that the company's got debt. Yeah. Like they didn't have debt, and they actually want to see that because they want to make sure that they they're growing. See that you're growing. Yeah you're taking advantage of the assets that you've got. Now I, I think some of that thinking is just perverse, you know. I mean, what could be better than a company that's generating really good income and can you know keeps that income and reinvest that income to grow? You know, when you when you increase when, when you put leverage into the picture and especially if it then you know, if it then leads you to be making these other sort of growth decisions that you wouldn't otherwise make because you've got to, yeah you know, deploy that money, it's just...
1: But I guess the other side of that is that a company that's established that's got a steady flow of, of inflows should be in a much better position to carry something if it doesn't go well. So yeah. they could wear the storm of the leverage, whereas a newer business that might be leveraged at 60, 70, 80% of their their value—it's yeah. pretty dangerous for them to be in that position because you know they lose one major client or something like that goes, then they're in a far greater, yeah. far greater position to risk, aren't
0: they? Yeah, and it's exactly the same with um, with individuals. Correct. Because if you think about it from a what you're saying from an individual point of view, if I've just got a job, yep. you know, one high income earning job, and I'm carrying a huge amount of debt, yep. I'm completely exposed to that one job.
1: Yeah, you and know, and you know, I think dropping
0: it dropping off, and if it if it did, you know, then that leverage is going to come back to bite you really
1: quickly. And that's my fear with with older people carrying debt. You know, like you see these people that are in that are employees of big bigger companies, mm. and they've they've worked their way up, and they're sitting on pretty pretty packages. You know, yeah. they're earning good money, but they've leveraged themselves to buy that house and put their kids through private school and buy that nice car and mm. go on the overseas holidays, and then they find that they're in their 50s and there's someone that comes along in their 30s that's prepared to do their job for half price. Yeah. And and it's pretty tough to find another gig and it's an ego thing too to not want to go back to a role that's paying $100,000 less than what they were earning before and now their lifestyle doesn't warrant what they're earning. Yeah, um, it, It's a tough thing and you're making yeah. decisions not based on what you want to do but what you have to do.
0: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And look, I think also... You know, the people that are vulnerable, obviously, as you say, the older people, and also people on lower incomes as Correct. well. Correct. Because, um, and this was a really, you know, really telling stat, I thought, from that AMP report. It said that low income families' uh, portion of take home income to debt, so that's the amount of their income that they get that they're spending on debt repayments, has increased from 40% to 60%. So that, that's pretty huge. I mean, I don't know what. Yeah, I would have thought. Generally speaking, the absolute maximum for a high income earner is that you wouldn't want more than forty percent of take home debt of take home income to be paid on debt. But if you're a lower income to, to be paying that sort of portion out is.
1: And, and we're talking pure debt. We're talking mortgage on the home, um, credit loan, card credit debt. Card, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, all sorts of debt. So we're not talking uh, running an investment portfolio sort of thing. We're talking debt that is, in in essence, bad debt. They're not yes. leveraged. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It's a lot of money, isn't it? And mm. it's it's almost class determined and it keeps mm. people in their spot a bit, doesn't it? Because, yeah. you know, if you're take, paying 60% of your income to paying and just getting by, you're not going to get into the position where you can start leveraging, are you? Because you're just, you're treading water. Like yeah. 40% of money to run a household, to put clothes on your kids back and put food on the table. You haven't got a lot of money left, do you?
0: And the thing is, is I wonder if you drill down, I guarantee you that most of that debt is super high interest rate. Absolutely, but that'll be you know I reckon largely credit card debt, and or you know maybe store debt or something like that. So, you know even if they even if even if you are making the repayments, you're just paying the
1: interest. Do you, and you mentioned you do some stuff, some pro bono stuff for people that are in crisis as well. Yeah. Do Do you find that they understand or they they realise the the significance of the position they're in.
0: Yeah, I think it's um it's complex. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things, and I what I do want to do a show about this in for the Jewish community. We've got a um an interest-free loans, um facility. Awesome. Where we help people, you know, get out buy, of the. Yeah, they might buy money to buy a car or or for you know travel or for their education, and we've started doing now debt refinancing as well. Awesome. So exactly that when people end up with this high credit card debt that you know that they, they, they may be they may have gotten to that situation because they had a medical emergency or whatever yep. if they've gotten to that situation because of a specific event it's kind of okay to you, know, you want to go in there and help them if it's because of just overspending lifestyle they, then it can be problematic because even if you help them with that debt they just blow it out again yep so it's quite complex like mm. when we do it i mean at Jewish care we've got a lot of um, support we have financial counseling so yep. it goes hand in hand in hand with it so, you know, but it's not easy getting people to change their habits. No. They've got to really want to do it. Uh, and people, you know, once you get sort of addicted to those credit cards, people are, can be very reluctant to do it. Mm. But with us, it's like, well, at the end of the day, we say, Look, we, we don't want to be part of the problem. Yes. We yep. want, if we can help you get a solution through this, but it's going to take a commitment. Uh, and at Jewish Care Now, we've got the support services to help people with that commitment but there are still some people that um, that don't want to do
1: it. I think it's an awesome, awesome initiative because, yeah. you know, like – uh, let's say that that's sixty percent. They might have thirty thousand dollars on credit cards, yeah. and it's six thousand dollars a year to stand still. Exactly. And then on top of that, they then even if they're paying back eleven thousand dollars a year, it'll, it'll take them six years to pay off. Correct. You know, and Correct. and in that time, and
0: often they they won't be able to pay anyone any that. Or all they could maybe do is is pay the minimum. The
1: interest. Yeah, and and yeah. in that time, surely something else is going to go wrong. You know, like if I I just have, I always have a a bit of a, a, I love to get everybody that I work with to a point where they got three months worth of their fixed expenses in cash so that we never have to go to credit, you know, like. But people are attached to it. And, and to even ask people that are in a, a strong enough financial position to cut up their cards, mm. I've heard the weirdest excuses as to why they can't. Yeah. I get points on my flights yeah. and, you know, it's 160,000 fl- points to fly to LA, which meant yeah. it's actually cost you 160 grand, yeah. you know, really, um, where a flight these days is about 1,800 bucks. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's funny some of the excuses you hear from people when it's just a habit.
0: Yeah. All Well, we might just uh, take a little break for a song, and then we're going to get Peter Reba, director of First Point Group, on the phone to have a bit of a chat on his views as a mortgage broker. So, as promised, we now have on the phone uh, Peter Reba, director at First Point Group. Peter, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Reuben. How are you? We're doing well. Thanks a lot for
0: joining us. Good night, Peter. Hi, Craig. How are you? Really well, mate. So, Peter, we're going to um, we're going to throw at you some of the questions that Craig and I get asked by our clients all the time. So, one of the first ones is is obviously you know people can go to their bank for a mortgage. We we hear that the mortgage broking sort of business has picked up a lot. What's the um, what's the reason why people go to brokers versus going direct to the banks?
2: I'll just give you two high level things first. So. Fifty-six percent of mortgages in the residential space, you know, investment and owner-occupied, are now written through the broker channel, as the, as the you know, the banking channels are uh, more a gatherer function rather than a hunter function. Yeah. And from a commercial perspective, row brokers now write nearly thirty-three percent of, of the sector commercial mortgage debt, principally. Wow. I think look, the main so they're pretty startling numbers, uh, and has that, in- that increased a lot, like over the years? Has that, you know, risen yeah. exponentially? a great question. So I've started uh, we started First Point Group in two thousand and one room, so that's a long time ago after twenty five years I had in NAB. And um when I started the residential space was eighteen percent and wow. the commercial space was nine. So it's a classic outsourcing strategy, you know. You'll see it in all industries from whether you talk about, you know, funds management, financial planning, whether you talk about the way the big uh, you know, insurance companies have dissected and unbundled and outsourced to advisors, for example, like yourself and so forth, you yeah. know. Um, so that's, for, and it's happened in the telco space as well. So the numbers have been exponential. I think people, the advantage of using a broker is that, you know, look, you've got a wide and diverse panel haven't you? And in particular, you know, if you do residential, commercial, and asset finance, which we do, it's wider, but let's stick to residential today to keep it simple. And if you've got a wide panel, probably let's say 20 to 24 lenders, um, so you have a wide choice because not all lenders do the same things. And with, Whereas with a bank, who are, who are great, by the way, you know, they're suppliers of money and product and innovation in that regard, they're, they're a mono liner. Um, which means you know they're a single single player in their own space and can only develop products off their own space on their own brand effectively. So that's probably the the, the key the key reason why why you would use a broker versus use a bank, I would say.
1: And um, the other one that I, I'm sure you get multiple times a week, interest rates. Where, where do you think they're uh, they're pretty low at the moment? What, what are your, what's your take on where they'll be heading?
2: Yeah, what a what a nice <laughs> crystal ball, Craig. That, that's called a setup. We're mate. writing this
1: down, mate. So yeah, no, that's right.
2: I'll erase the tape. No, look, crystal balls, you know. But look, our view of our business, we write, you know, a monthly piece um, oh, straight off the back of the RBA update. We're literally out, seriously, within about fifteen seconds of the announcement. We'd be one of the first broker groups in Victoria, let alone Australia, out straight away with some commentary. Um, we would say that whilst these fixed rates have moved up over the last three months, if you look at the, what we call the back end, the four to five year end, have moved up, which might reflect the cost of money down the track, that the futures market will go up a bit, not significant, but they're probably going up a quarter, 0.3. Um, but at the front end, one, two, three, fixed, haven't moved much at all. The variable rate, we think is pretty flat for the next, uh, I can't agree with one of my other partners, but he thinks 12 months, I think maybe nine months. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as you would well know, you made a great comment earlier about where rates were with parents and that and so forth. You know, they're 18, they actually actually 22 at one point, but inflation was 10, don't forget, maybe running at 12. Um, you know, we, we would see rates, you know, moving up marginally, you know, at the back end, which, you know, might take some of the sales out of the real estate market to a degree, but no, there's nothing in the short term, unless it's out of cycle. You know, the banks have yep. moved out of cycle because mm-hmm. APRA, the regulator, um, for the listener, you know, it has been all over the banks. Not saying they've done a bad job at all. They've done a great job, um, but Apple's been all over it. Worried about some of the things you guys mentioned. You know, you talked about interest only and things like that, which we can cover later. So we yeah. think rates are flattish, but with, with a marginal upward tick. You know, until you see... I don't want to get too verbose, but until you see the economy firing around the 3.5 GDP, um, rates shouldn't move up. The RBI will be happy, and also to see... You know, they want inflation to move up. And it's not; it's dead flat. Now, it's,
0: inter- it's interesting with people having borrowed so much more than they have in the past. A small increase in interest rates has a massive effect on the economy. And also, you know, if the majority of people's loans are variable rates, there's a direct feed through, isn't there? I mean, a 0.25% increase leads you know 80 or 80% of the um the country to have less less money in their pocket.
2: Can I tell you the flip side of that? This is our this is our pitch. So we would probably have 95% of our portfolio within a long time at variable rates. All right? and we're in Camberwell. That we don't have the typical Camberwell demographic, but um, so if you think about it, we, we most people would be variable with us, and they are well ahead. They are mm. so far ahead in their repayment program rooms because we've obviously monitor the book monthly. They are so far ahead, so we, and we encourage that. You know, we want them to build a buffer. We know yeah. rates will go up we know that if rates go up 1%, that's literally a, a great, nearly a 25% increase on where rates are today. Mm. So we, we have those conversations with our clients right up front to get out on the table. And for example, the first home buyer that's worried because a partner might be gonna have a baby or whatever, or whatever, or might be leaving work to study, well, we might lock 50-50. Yeah. You know? so you lock 50, and then they go hell for leather, reduce that variable, so build that buffer. Because some people do, Lose their jobs, you know. Some people, we have people years and years ahead, which is where I think a lot of the good market is. They've been concentrating on this, actually.
1: So, so with that, Peter, with um the banks, we've we've had a couple of clients that have been caught out recently with with serviceability. The banks are putting pretty hefty, I guess, uh, rates above what their actual loan rate is. What's the thought behind that, and just in terms of serviceability?
2: So, just at the, just at the high level. So that's that's APRA driven, so yes. APRA, you know, the regulator, yep. as we all know them. So they literally <laughs> and have been living in the banks, Craig, for two years now, right? Living, literally living yep. on the floor. And, and so, and we know that as brokers because we're seeing the rapid change in policy on residential and commercial You know, over the last two years, it's been very hectic as a business to keep up with the change, right? So APRA's been in there. So APRA has forced the banks to crank their servicing rate, what what you and I might call stress rates, servicing rates. So let's argue you're going for a home loan and you think the rate you're going to get, let's let's argue you can get some really good money at under 4%. It's not investment. It's a home loan. It's owner-occupied. It's what you and I might call bad debt, right? Um, And then, but you're being stressed at seven and a quarter. Yes. In fact, some lenders stress at eight. There are some lenders that are branded that are not big banks, sec- second tier, but big globally, actually bigger than the big banks here, hard to believe, um, are using double because we all yeah. know rates will move up. So, so therefore, therefore they're taking less of market share. You could imagine that, couldn't you? Right. So yeah. Yeah. We've probably moved from a market share game where it really went because everyone had too much capital, banking wise. The yep. whole market did, and in financial planning, everyone had too much money. Right. When they recovered from the GFC, to now they really because they know rates will go up and no properties you know, moved away. Let's just let's play, play this prudently, really important to play it prudently as a country and as a banking system. So. Mm, so
0: that's and it does,
2: it does affect people to borrow. As you just said, some people would be going, well, I, you know, I would have been able to borrow this. There's people who could have borrowed more two years ago than they can borrow today. Yeah. It's interesting how much
0: it's changed. Uh, I'll just put a reminder out to anyone, the listeners out there, you can SMS at any time if you've got a question for us or for Peter. The SMS number is 04788 Triple two five eight, Peter. We're also discussing about you know the advent of interest only loans and how much it's changed since when you know sort of our, our parents took out loans. What sort of portion of um of of loans do you think are interest only at the moment?
2: You know, I was just fascinated to sit and listen earlier, and I thought Gee, I've got to say some things. How do I get in? You know, if I was a listener, I'd be texting and blogging and whatever. Um, so. Look, let's, let's split that into two conversations. One is home loan, isn't it? Right. Owner-occupied, you live in a, let's call it, bad debt, the debt you, debt you do want to pay off, right? Even though we might not all agree, you know, um, some financial planners might say, I want to put your more money into super and pay less off your home or whatever. But let's just say principally build equity in your home and pay your, your bad debt off, right? So those, uh, those, those people, I would say, would be lucky to be 2% interest only. There would be so few. Honestly, I reckon we'd have three here and they'd be big clients that get big bonuses that just want to have that flexibility or they're doing some major construction works and they want to let the dust settle. So I I find that interest-only home loan piece well over-exaggerated, but perhaps Mm. we're a bad litmus test. Of course, investment, as you and Craig would know. If we didn't have 90% of the book... Interest-only investment, we'll, we'd be doing the wrong thing for a client because then they don't they don't get their leverage, they don't get their tax breaks, right? Yeah. And but a lot of that does depend on their age as well. We all we all know that it comes a point in time, even if it's investment, then you got to do something because you, if you're PAYG, you can't work forever, you know. Yeah, that's right.
1: And I think it's interesting, um, and it sounds like it, it's done really well with you guys that that you do take that leadership role with people because unless told, people will just do what they thinks right, don't you think?
2: I definitely, I think, well, you know what, you guys mentioned habit, habit, I'm a great believer in saying, if you, and this is the same in your space, you go, if you can't get the cash off the table in a disciplined manner to do things with it, then it won't come off the table. Yeah. So you've just got to be experienced enough, bold enough, smart enough to have those really good open discussions with people. And there, I think you said earlier, Craig, you hear some crazy things for people with their credit cards. Well. We hear those same stories, you know. Mm. We we spend half our life cutting up credit cards with people that have got a hundred grand limits, yeah. you know. Now that's not many, but that'd be a, a small percentage of people. So, yeah, you've got to you've got to access your cash while you can because it won't be there forever. So.
0: Peter, a couple of weeks ago, we had Roger Montgomery uh, on as a guest, oh, yeah. uh, and Roger had he's a he's a fund manager, at Montgomery yep. Investment Management, mm. and Roger had some has got some pretty strong views about the property market, particularly the apartment market. He's sort of come up with a lot of statistics around how many apartments are being built, particularly around the east coast of Australia. And anyone who hasn't listened to that interview, I highly suggest that you do. It's available uh, on our site. But he feels that there's going to there's a huge oversupply coming, and the prices are going to take a big dip. So I guess at the at the at the real coal face of that would be the mortgage brokers and the banks uh, in terms of how they see that risk. Uh, you know, and how it plays out with with borrowers looking to borrow money for for new off the plan apartments.
2: Such a good, such a good point. And um, so, you know, we're not, I don't think I actually don't think there's such a thing as a property advisor, to be honest with you, because I just don't think the industry's got anyone qualified and it around it to do that so we read all the big bank papers you know, in the bowels of their economics areas and their property areas and we have access to stuff the public doesn't so you know obviously i would say uh, treat with care off the plan um there, there's definitely pockets that have, will have oversupply we see that happening through the policy changing where on certain postcodes and let's talk the east coast where the LMI, the mortgage insurers, the LMI lender mortgage insurance, you know, which goes off the bat on the back of a loan that the banks use to insure anything over eighty percent loan to value ratio, what we officially call LVR. The insurers pull out of those postcodes uh, on certain size apartments. We don't want them, so we watch all these policies because that affects how we can place people in mm-hmm. the market. So there's no. You know, I can't think you're in South. There's no doubt because you know what the migration and the economy is going okay. Economy grew at 1.1% for the last quarter, which is really good. 2.4 annually, fantastic. So there's some absorption that's going to take up, but none of us know because we're watching the amount of building in in particular um, New South Wales and Victoria, and obviously some around the Gold Coast areas like that. So I, I just say people treat with care um, as to as to how they invest in those areas. You know, and particularly if you're buying in the you know, you're going to an apartment block and it's one of 300 um, uh, tread with care, I would
1: say. So, Peter, you mentioned sort of property experts. Um, Victorians seem to love, uh, I'm from Sydney originally, and it wasn't as big up there, but buyer's advocates. What are, you, what are your thoughts on a buyer's advocate service?
2: Craig, I'm from Sydney as well. There yeah. you go. So, well kindred um kindred
1: souls, I could tell. Yeah. I could hear it in your voice.
2: That's right, we, and we carry, <laughs> you, you hear the rugby league accent. No. So <laughs> the first carry, mortgage that you guys ever saw was
0: down in Melbourne probably because they don't, I don't really have no, we're, m- we're much richer up there. We have, Sorry, don't have more. I didn't mean mortgages. I, I, I mean auctions. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Barad, it's great. It's um, only cash in Sydney. It's only cash, man. <laughs> right? I, I meant auctions. Auctions are a great a great, great pastime here, particularly in the Caulfield area. <laughs> yep. on, on a oh. Saturday, Sunday afternoon, oh. Philip Kingston from Gary Peer Associates. <laughs> it's, it's like going to
2: the theatre. It's like a plug.
0: It is absolutely fantastic. We might actually get him on one time. <laughs> Do that,
2: it's quite, quite interesting. So, um, buyer advocates, so like for example, we you know we bolt on the services we believe our clients require. So, we've got we have two, so there's a need for them. We believe, yep. not everyone takes them because there's a cost, but we see it as an investment. It also helps people convert because there's still people. I can tell you right now, we I think we have 30 pre approvals in the residential space yep. that have been sitting there for over 12 months to 18 months because they can't convert. And because there's a non-preparedness to spend some money on an advocate who might get something that's not listed on the market, he's yep. going to help you shape your whole brief far better than you can, blah, blah, blah. So I, I understand it'll be courses for courses. Time poor people absolutely love them. So yeah. the doctors, people like that, and they get outstanding results. But the people that have got time to look and want to do it all themselves, they, that's okay. So I guess,
1: I guess my question then was the experts that you mentioned that there's no such thing. What, what do you mean by that?
2: Well, I would uh, argue that uh, if so, for example, like you ask, guys ask me a question on property, yes. right? You know, I, I don't have to have a ticket or, or let's argue, uh, a qualification to talk to you about that, right. right? So you, so you could say, well, I think a real estate's an expert, and I would say I disagree with you. Right? because as you know, everything's written in the bias of the people that are writing the papers and you know, you, you know that from your industry that you just gotta read who's writing and what who's saying. Yeah. Because somehow it's that industry you've got to work your way through yourself. you know. So if you want to talk about an expert, you know, I I would go as close as saying a bio advocate is a is a better uh Option and a more qualified person, yes. than than just just talking to obviously talking to anybody because what happens in property, Craig, is there's too many people go to too many barbecues and they listen to their best friend yep. or their mate or their brother or their who
1: father. We had one good story? Yeah,
0: exactly. It's, it's <laughs> interesting. We were talking with um, with Tim Farley last week, and we were talking about sort of market bubbles and how hard it is to get out of the way of them when markets are just rising and rising and they're yep. they're, they're primed for a fall. That's the yep. hardest thing to get away from because everyone 's talking about it everyone's making money, and as you say, particularly with property, everyone's got an opinion. I mean most people have got opinion on the share market as well, but I think I think the property market is one that you know more people even talk about than shares
2: I think so the other thing guys that I well, obviously one of the things that concerns me is the uh, and is the self-managed super fund uh, mm. space, where, where we, are, we are right in, you know, we do it commercial for people buying their buildings in their super fund, we do it residential, but we do far less residential than commercial. There's, I, th- I personally think there's too many people come along with just a couple of hundred thousand sitting in a super fund. They've never, they, they perhaps don't like shares, they can't handle, some people are like that, we get that, and they want to put it into one single property. Mm. You know, that's that's not a strategy, yeah. right? Okay, so can, I think,
0: yeah. yeah. We could probably have a whole show on that. I I agree with you. I think that's a major issue. And I think what happens is exactly what you're saying. They've got a certain amount of money. Say they've got 200,000, say the bank lends them 200,000. They've got to find a property of 400,000. That's all they can do. And they, you know, they may not find a good investment, grade quality property at that price, but that's what they're stuck with. And they just have to go and do it and they'll, they'll buy it. And as you say, the, you know, People are pushing them into it without really, you know, knowing their full situation and knowing what other options are out there. You know, right. and they're selling,
2: a, they're selling the dream. Spot on. I, I think that's that herd mentality. Mm. That's the sheep. That's the lemmings that might end up running off the cliff. But you know, I'm not a doomsayer on property, property at all. You know, I think there's some still some good buyers around. It's pretty hot still. It's a we're learning how the market's opened up this year. We'll learn more next week and the week after, and we'll get a bit of a feel, but um, I think personally until rates uh, move or APRA intervene and start to play around, or who knows what's in the budget, we don't know, we're well, just th- not doomsayers, you know, mm-hmm. there's other stuff that's, there'll be things to play out this year that I don't think we will have seen before, because mm-hmm. I've seen a lot in the last 12 months that I haven't seen in 42 years of working.
0: <laughs> and, the, and the thing with property as well is we all say we talk about the property market overall and the property market's doing this or that, but it's so particular to the property the actual, you know, it's not, you know, you can have these overall averages and overall view, but so much of it depends on the actual property itself, what its location is, what the land component value is. You know, it, it, there's just such a range of diversity that sometimes, you know, those the, the broad statements about the market, you know, are not,
2: is not that useful. No, I agree. The last thing I'll say, the last thing is that to me, it's all about the jobs and the economy. Well, let's say the economy mm. and then the jobs. Is um, economy stupid? Is that what it's yeah, called? that's right.
0: And Who it's, said that? Yeah. Uh, I haven't
1: I heard was, what, have you, well,
0: you never Keating. heard that? No. Well, it was Keating, I think, wasn't oh, it? I'm too young, baby-faced. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's
2: right. Thanks, Craig. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah, so I started working when I was three. At least you didn't say it was Fraser or Gorton. <laughs> Might have been. Now it's all about the jobs in the economy, and uh, <laughs> therefore, you know, if you have a really good economy, then the interest rates should rise, isn't it? So funny. In the past, you would say interest rates uh, rising. Agents used to love interest rates rising because properties actually went up because they were in a high inflation climate. But we we don't have high inflation, and we won't we won't. I don't think ever see double digit ever in ever as a terrible word in my lifetime, no. and uh, because prudentially, government and the regulators weren't allowed to get out of hand.
0: Yeah, well, that's really their key sort of ambit, isn't it? The RBA, they've got to keep inflation within a certain range. That's almost Correct. their number one yep. objective,
2: isn't it? Yeah, it is. Their objective is not to squash property. Mm. People just get it wrong, you know? Everyone has concerns about it and all that, and the, the poor first home buyer, which I feel for dramatically because we see mm. them getting knocked out because the investors are uh, uh, are in there. But don't forget, APRA's in there, and they're playing in that investor space. There mm. I was going to say one or two things was that I think Craig spoke about age earlier, about people who have debt at their end or yeah. whatever, but there'd be very little interest-only debt for a PAYG, uh, you know, non-self-employed person for a home, mm. right? Uh, it would never have been written in the last two years. I don't think we've ever written it unless someone was about to clear it and sell something else or whatever. So I don't think that's the... That's a concern, but one other thing is age does matter. Whilst you can't be age discriminatory, the the what's called NCCP, the National Consumer Credit Protection Act, which has been in place for five years, age matters. You know mm. that Craig talked about someone being offered 15 years finance. If we talked about that as a home loan, you know, and you were let's say 50, that's that's your term. You won't get 30 years, and you shouldn't get 30 years. Unless well, you're
1: Peter, I'm just... This This happened this week. One of the big four banks offered a client of mine in their 60s, three yeah. years interest only with a 30-year loan term.
2: Is that, is that, obviously, that's investment, is
1: it? No, principal residence.
2: So that's really concerning because mm. if it was investment, I'd say the other key piece, so age matters, and the key the, piece is the exit, exit strategy. strategy. Yeah. You and I, we, we've got to craft our exit strategy with the client open discussion. Some people can sell down from a $2 million home and live in a million and, but and you know, I,
1: think, I think this is the issue and, and look, the only concern that I have with, with some mortgage brokers is that they can you can tell whatever story you want. You could say that this is going to be an investment, you could say all these different sort of things and it does still come down to the introducer a little bit to have moral, a moral compass and that's the only thing that I still see in this current environment that can get things through where they shouldn't be.
2: Yeah, the only comment about that, Craig, is that is that the stories are in the numbers. Yes, you can't you can't lie. So the A and L, the asset and liability statement, is pretty well tested, mm. you know. And I'd hate to get back to the days of, oh, well, you need to provide rates notices for every property you own. Understand well, like a, you know, those old days. So, yeah. um, but I, I share a similar concern, and I share exactly the same concern if you went to a bank. Yeah, exactly, 100 exactly
1: percent right. Concern. Yeah, and that's and that's my concern with the variable nature of it.
0: All right, right, guys. Well, Peter, thanks a lot. That was a really enlightening discussion. Uh, Really appreciated it. So so we're going to move on now to uh, our final couple of segments, Peter, but thanks very much for joining us.
2: Thanks, Reuben. Thanks, Craig. Enjoy the rest of the... I'll be listening for the rest of the show. Talk again.
0: Excellent. Yeah. Okay, that was right. Peter Reba, director at First Point Group. Really interesting stuff, isn't it? I mean, one thing I always like looking at is like looking at the Australian market compared to other markets in the world in terms of how our mortgages work. Mm. And I actually think that we've got like one of the most flexible systems from what I understand as compared to the rest of the world. In what way? Well, in the States, for example, you know, you take long term fixed loans and they're not easy to get out of. They're well, long term, you know set interest rates. Is
1: is that post what happened with their their lending a few years ago that led to this collapse?
0: No, I think it's always been the case. Because they, they had that limit. I don't think the ability to kind of redraw and have this kind of flexible line of credit that you pay down and, and draw back out they just don't have that. That's but, my they had, but
1: they had. But they had. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Big Short. Um, yeah. But they talk about that no recourse borrowing, which was um, sure. yes, they might have had that. But you could literally throw the keys back and and walk away from your yes. property, um, right. which is the downside that we don't have. That's like we've different. got full recourse borrowing. So that's true. That's, I think where we're in a much stronger position as an economy to to weather the storms. That if that's true. if pri- we still got the asset, we've got yeah. mortgage insurance. But yeah, you m- you might be right on the actual repayment of the loan terms yeah. being a lot. More, f- uh, more rigid.
0: Yeah, that's true, and, I, and and I imagine things have changed there.
1: You'd you know, hope so. Changed <laughs> there
0: in the states a bit as well, but it's um, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I'm not sure I, I, about that many other countries. I know Israel, for example. I've got my brother-in-law and sister-in-law there. And I know their loans are also very plain vanilla. Okay. They're sort of long-term loans. They're, yeah, you know, they they're generally pegged to you know the like an RBA rate, for example, but they're really long-term, not as flexible. In terms of you know drawing money out, in terms of you know borrowing for another investment, um, you know, it's just a different beast. So I actually think we've probably got one of the most sort of flexible loan markets. It's it's right. interesting, but, but you know, it's got its it's got its pros and it's got its cons. But and you know, as I said, there's always the flip side. We say we can borrow too much, but but hey, if you're buying good quality assets that are going up in value, you know, gearing is your friend. Correct. So it's um. That's the way it goes. Alrighty. Well, we might just uh, play a quick song, have a quick promo, and then we'll get on to our hack of the week and propeller head of the week. <laughs> Alright, Craig, I've been waiting for this all week, mate. Yeah, The first hack of the week we had was a very, very low key sort of back of the piece of paper one, but you definitely picked it up again last, <laughs> last week with the, uh, with the Last Pass, and I'm looking. Looking forward to a gem this week.
1: Well, the gem you might you might have to wait another week if it was if it was a tech gem. But I guess for me this week, being around gearing and being around habits, I just think that um, most people that I see need to trick themselves when it comes to their money. Um, and what I mean by that is that we all we all receive money on a certain date. So you might get paid weekly, fortnightly, monthly, and once you've worked out kind of where your money's going, and you mentioned forty percent to debt. today whatever it might be but moving the money before you spend it Mm. is a really good trick that I've seen for most of the people that I work with that are successful do that in some form as opposed to moving the money and then spending what's less it's moving the money and to invest first and then spend what you want to be spending, as opposed to just spending what's there. Yeah. Um, and, and what's
0: the sort of best mechanism to do that? Have multiple bank accounts? Oh,
1: I, I don't like recommend? I don't like a really complicated strategy. Yeah. I just like having one pot for your fixed yeah. spending, one pot for your future spending, which is your investment, yeah. and one pot for your fun. Um, so it's three bank accounts. Well, you can, or you could have the two linked to the others. I, I think yeah. you really only need one, other than your everyday account. Um, and I think your future stuff should be going into investments. Once you've got the three months cash buffer, you yeah. should be doing it into things that aren't cash. I don't think yeah. you need more than three months worth of cash. Um, so yeah, I, I know it's not a high tech hack but it's sort of a, a simple technique you can apply quickly and I think that's what a hack is it's it's what you can Absolutely. what you can do quickly it's not good technology though. no I, I've pigeoned you a whole I've you have as a, as a, a geek, geek. <laughs> and if
0: you don't come up with anything super sexy I know I can you for it but so what now, about um? I'm going to change
1: what about your propeller head I'm, I've been running for your jam now
0: propeller head of the week so I'm also going to be talking about loans and this is something that I think people still get confused about a lot in terms of you know good debt versus bad debt, what you can claim a tax deduction for and what you can't. So you can't claim a tax deduction for borrowings that are for personal purposes, not income producing. So borrowing for you know for your home um, that you're living in, borrowing for a car that's just for personal use. Um, obviously, borrowing for money for something that's going to be income producing, like property or shares, you can claim a tax deduction for the interest. But important point that people sometimes get confused about is it's not really what you're using as security to borrow against, it's really what the purpose of the loan is, right? So you can be borrowing against your house, which is inheriting a lifestyle asset, but if the purpose of what you're doing, the money's going towards shares or investment property, it is tax deductible. And the flip side is also true. If you've got an investment property, and this happened, I've had these questions from times, that people have got an investment property and they want to refinance and take some money out. And they they said me, oh yeah, I want to take some money out and I'm going to use it for the holiday or for the, you know, for a new car. And they said, oh, it's against the investment property. It's going to be deductible. No, it's not. It doesn't make any difference what the security is. Mm. If you're using that for a personal purpose, it's not tax
1: deductible. It's a really good one. So the purpose rather than the asset is the determining factor on the deductibility. Exactly. Or
0: as my tax lecturer used to say, the nexus.
1: The nexus. We did talk about. We did laugh about this. (laughs)
0: <laughs> All righty. Well, that uh, that probably takes us to the end of the show for this week. Uh, thanks again to Peter Eber from First Point Group for um you know, for his insights on the mortgage market. Craig, thanks again. Thank you for Mike. joining us. Uh, we'll be back again next week, uh, and we look forward to you tuning in then.